Well, the ending of a story says as much about the whole story as any other part of the story, for better or worse. We've all read a story or watched a movie where the ending either made the story or ruined the story. We've all come to the end of a story and found it to be fill in the blank, frustrating, annoying, mystifying, perplexing, anticlimactic, or profound, fascinating, thrilling. There are stories with sad endings, a love story where the two young lovers die. What? There are bad endings, a protagonist warrior is defeated and dies the end. They're happy endings, even if predictable. Rocky defeats the Russian. They're surprise endings that are mysterious and become more profound the more we think about them. Bruce Willis was dead the whole time? I didn't tell you which movie that is, so I didn't give it away. It's not Die Hard, by the way, just so you know. And there are some endings which clearly signal a a sequel that's to come, a book two, perhaps. Well, today we come to the end of the book of Exodus. And yes, this is our last week in the book of Exodus. And let me affirm for you why this should be our last week in the book of Exodus. Now, over the last six weeks, we've taken a break from our study of Exodus to ask some vision and, you know, some strategy questions regarding ministry and what's next for our church. But if you were with us back seven or eight weeks ago when we had a prior message in Exodus, you might remember that we were in Exodus 35 and 36 talking about the contributions uh, that the people provided for the construction of the tabernacle. And so if you've been keeping track, you might be saying this morning, last message, what, what gives, preacher? I mean, are you skipping Exodus 37, 38, and 39 and just running to the, the finish line of Exodus 40? It's a fair question. But if you've been keeping more careful attention, you might uh, have seen this coming. Because Exodus 25 to 40... 25 to 40, all those chapters, there is significant repetition in those chapters. In fact, I think I can show you that with this chart. You can see there are various features regarding the tabernacle that are found on both sides of Exodus 25 to 31 on the one side, and then Exodus 35 to 40 on the other side. On the first side of things, you've got directions for the building of the tabernacle in those specific features of the tabernacle. And then in Exodus 35 to 40, you've got not directions, it's instead the completion of, the the construction of, the, the fulfillment of those directions that were given in the earlier chapters. And as you can see up there, the scripture references on both sides of the charts not only cover the same topics in almost exactly the the same order. 
But we have, with every detail almost, in the, in the directions spelled out, we have the same detail repeated in the completion of the tabernacle, and often word for word. The primary difference between these two sections is that in the first section, the directions of 25 to 31, you've got this repetition of God saying, you shall make, you shall make, you shall make, future tense. And then in the chapters recording the construction of the tabernacle in chapters 35 to 40, you've got the repetition of this word made. They made. He made, they made, past tense. And that really is the whole point of the repetition. What God said they should make, they made. Which, by the way, is in stark contrast to chapters that are in the middle of these two sides. Exodus 32 to 34. Those chapters aren't about the tabernacle. Because Exodus 32 records the people's making of a false god, the the golden calf. Remember, Moses was coming down the mountain to the people, having been given the the laws, but also the plans for for the tabernacle, for God's dwelling among his people, the, the plans for God's worship among his people, only to find the people that with Aaron's help they had made a false god to worship and to draw into, to draw near to. And so you could think of Exodus 32 to 34 in just two words. It's rebellion and then restoration. God restores them. But those middle chapters aside for just now, back to the point of the repetition that occurs on both sides of it, what God said they should make they made, and they made it as God said it. So look with me at Exodus 39, before we get to chapter 40. Look at Exodus 39, where this point is made explicit. Not only do you see, and I'll leave you to find it on your own, the repetition of that word, made, they made, they made. In this chapter, it happens to be the priestly garments. But there's also... A sevenfold repetition, usually it's at the end of each paragraph, if you have a Bible that marks out paragraphs for you. This phrase, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made, they made, they made, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 1, verse 5, verse 7, verse 21, verse 26, verse 29, verse 31. And then you get towards the end of this chapter and we have a summary statement That ties it neatly in a bow, what all this is about. So look at verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. And then verse 42 and 43. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. So that's the point of these chapters, Exodus 37 all the way to 39. 
And we need not go through every repeated detail along the way to get the main point. What God commanded for the building of the tabernacle, they did, and to a T. Now, on to chapter 40 for, for what is really the end of the story. And what a curious ending of a story it is. It's simultaneously predictable and surprising. It is both glorious and left undone. Let's read it together. Exodus chapter 40. We'll read the whole chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony. And you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony. And set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations." This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark, and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting, on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses." He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. 
When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the cord around the tabernacle and the altar and set up on the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their generations." Well, here we have two primary points, both related to the tabernacle. The first is that the tabernacle is finished according to God's plan. The second is that it is filled with God's presence. So first, the tabernacle is finished according to God's plans in the first 33 verses. Now, the components for the tabernacle had been completed before chapter 40. That's chapters 36 to 39. But final assembly hadn't happened yet. The the furniture had all been skillfully crafted in earlier chapters, but they hadn't yet been put in their proper, prescribed-by-God locations. The priestly garments had been sewn together and been all finished before this, but they hadn't yet been put on the priests, and the priests had not yet been anointed or consecrated. Now notice the two halves of this first section of 33 verses. The first half, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, and then gives several, well, a dozen plus verses of directions. And then the second half, verse 16 and following, This Moses did, according to all that the Lord had just commanded him. Notice as well, there are time stamps near the beginning of each of these sections. So, on verse 2, it's on the first day of the first month that God says this should be done. And then verse 17, it was in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month that Moses did it. Not a year later than when God said he should do it, right on time, a year later than the Passover. It was back in chapter 12 that God gave his people essentially a new calendar. He said this is the first day of the first month of the first year because this whole exodus thing This whole thing of getting out of Egypt and being free from Pharaoh's tyranny was sort of a new birth for the people. And so now here we are at the end of Exodus, and it's just a year later. In case you've wondered how long this has taken, it's been a year exactly to the day since they left Egypt. So this is now, if they were writing checks, they would put in the date 1-1-2. (laughs) It's important to note that date because... 
course, this final erecting of the tabernacle is hearkening back to that Exodus moment. But it's also, it's hearkening back to their birth as a nation. It's, 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 it's a New Year's Day. And just like we think of New Year's Day as sort of a new beginning, so even a year later, New Year's Day is sort of a, a new day, a new era, a new time. But it also harkens back to creation, both in that this is the beginning, this is one, one, year two, but, but there are also other creation overtones throughout the passage. Notice the repetition in verses three to eight of these verbs, put and set or set up. Moses is told to put things in their place, to set up this or that. And that's creation language. In creation of Genesis 1 and 2, God set things in place. He set the stars in their place. He put Adam in the garden. And now he's having his servant Moses set things up, put things in their place. That's what Moses does in the the next half of that section, verses 16 to 33. He set up, he arranged, he put in place and of course, not putting in place stars or animals or plants or people, but the elements, the furnitures, the components of the tabernacle. The ark, the table, the lampstand, the veil, the altar, the basin. And then when he was all done, creation language is used again. Verse 33, and then Moses was finished. So Moses finished the work, just like God finished his work and rested on the seventh day of creation. So not only does Exodus 40 point us back to the beginning of our Bibles, it also points us back to the beginning of the book of Exodus. Exodus is a lesson in that principle that Bob Dylan sang about, you're going to have to serve somebody. Exodus is about serving. The story began with the Israelites serving Pharaoh. It's variously translated. Sometimes it says serve. Sometimes it says they were slaves. In chapter 1, verse 13, it says that they were, they were laboring rigorously. Same Hebrew word for serve. And it's God who picks up that language then and begins using it in his declarations through Moses to Pharaoh, demanding that his people would be released so that they may serve me, God says. That's chapter 7, verse 16, repeated again twice in chapter 8, twice in chapter 9, again in chapter 10. These are all around the plagues. God keeps sending Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. Of course, serving God is not like serving Pharaoh in every way. One is, one is uh, cruel bondage and pain. And the other is, of course, merciful and it's covenantal and it's based on God's steadfast love. But undeniably, there is this purposeful narrative arc. They were serving Pharaoh 
God will bust them out to put them in service to him. And that theme of serving continues all the way through the book, even to the end. And so we see Moses being told to anoint or consecrate the priests. See verse 15? Anoint them that they may serve me as priests. Yes, every Israelite was to serve the Lord with their obedience and their worship. But their worship would mean nothing. It would be impossible apart from the priesthood and the sacrifices. And the priests would handle that business. And so they had a particular, essential, unique way of serving the Lord. They're the epitome of this story of once being in slavery, but now in service to the Lord. And so they're set apart for it. They're consecrated. They are anointed. All this Moses did. He did it, verse 16. It's just as the Lord commanded that Moses did it. Seven times, from verse 19 to verse 32, we see the same phrase, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And then he finished the work. So finally, now, the tabernacle is finished according to God's plan. Plans that began back in chapter 25 and ran on for another half dozen chapters or so. Plans that seemed to be, for a moment, hijacked and, and interrupted by, by the people's idolatry in chapter 32. For a couple chapters, it's uncertain what will come of their idolatry and them breaking covenant with God. But in chapter 34, God graciously forgives and he renews his covenant with his people. And he sends Moses down again with a new set of tablets and this time the people listen to Moses, and they obey. How could they not? Moses' face is aglow for having been in the presence of God on the mountain. And more than just obey, they freely give of their, their worldly wealth for the construction of, and the manufacturing of, and the sewing of these garments and things and materials for the tabernacle and then in chapter 40 finally it's all assembled it's all anointed and blessed according to God's very specific plans now as for all the details of the tabernacle as for all of its significance and and as for how each of these many different elements of the tabernacle uh, communicate truth in various ways we don't have time to cover that this morning. We did, some weeks back. If you weren't around for it, it's in Exodus 25 to 27. I preached one message on just what's called the tabernacle. And we went into the details of those structures and components of the tabernacle back then. We'll have to assume them for today. But, but there are two takeaways for us today from being at this point in the story of chapter 40. And one takeaway is obedience. Obedience. How can we not think of the importance of obedience with the repetition of that phrase that Moses did it just as the Lord commanded? Our obedience doesn't earn God's favor. 
But God's forgiveness and favor should breed a desire to obey. To even seek to obey meticulously, completely, fully, wholeheartedly. No, that doesn't mean that we will reach perfection or sinlessness anytime in this life. But this should show us the importance, the beauty, the rightness of obeying the Lord specifically and thoroughly. Obedience is part of this chapter of the Bible. And then secondly, there is this lesson that God is to be worshipped according to his design, his desires, his direction, his plans. In the days of the wilderness, that meant tabernacle, priesthood, sacrifices. In the days of Solomon, later on, that meant Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the temple. And now that Jesus has come, Jesus tells the woman from Samaria in John chapter 4 that worship now is spirit and truth. No longer on a mountain. No longer about place. Now, based on a person, Jesus himself. That changes things. That changes things. God's presence isn't in Jerusalem any more than it is here. But it is among a people now more than it ever was in Jerusalem. That freeness, that everywhereness, shouldn't breed a kind of willy-nilly approach to worship where we do whatever we want to do, we do whatever we think to do, whatever we can imagine to do, whatever we think will really move people spiritually today. And we look to the Bible once again. What has God said? And what does it say in the New Testament about what a church should do and how they should worship their God? Well, we find it scattered throughout. It's not just in one passage. But we find God's people are to gather, to sing songs, to pray together, to worship him, to hear from him, to hear the scriptures read, to hear the scriptures preached. This is what we're to do. The early church devoted themselves to to doctrine, to study, to truth, and to each other, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, what we call the Lord's Supper. This is what we call the, the simple means of grace, or the ordinary means of grace. We just do these simple things week in, week out, as God has told us to do. And so what we've done today, and what we haven't done today, is based on what God's word says. And it comes out of a desire to obey him, and a desire to trust him, for him to meet with us when we simply follow his ways. And when God has worshipped aright, he shows up. He shows up, sometimes in special ways. That was true in Acts 1 and 2, and it's true in Exodus 40 as well. 
So let me read the last few verses of our chapter. We read them already, but they're so good. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So here's our second part of the passage. The tabernacle is now filled with God's presence. It was finished according to his plan, then filled with his presence. And that was the plan all along. That's really the the real point, the main point, and the main purpose of the story of the Exodus. It's not the only point. So if we ask the question, why did God save Israel from slavery in Egypt? We could answer that a number of different legitimate ways. We could say, well, back in chapter 2, he heard their cries, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had mercy. He knew what they were going through. He had compassion. We could say, why did God do it? Well, to make his name known. I mean, there's this repetition throughout the the earlier chapters, especially while things are still in Egypt. God just keeps saying, that you may know, that you may know, that Pharaoh may know, that the world may know, that the nations may know that I'm like this and I'm like that. That's why God is doing what he's doing. But with one-third of the book of Exodus devoted to the tabernacle, and with purpose statements about it, like like this one found in chapter 25, verse 8. God said, let them make me a sanctuary. There it is, the tabernacle. That I may dwell in their midst. And then again in chapter 29, verse 46. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. And not only those summary statements, but with the book ending with this crescendo in the last five verses of God's glory coming down from the heavens and filling the tabernacle. This is the culmination of what's been promised, announced, and and even foreshadowed. God's glorious presence among his people. This was something of a restoration of what was lost in the garden. This was something of a portal between heaven and earth. The tabernacle was supposed to be thought of as sort of this outpost of heaven. Do you remember the ark is not only the place where sacrifice is made and blood is spilled, hence it's called the mercy seat, but it was also God's footstool. It's as if his throne is in heaven And as it were, he doesn't have feet, but as it were, if he had feet, it would be as though they were planted on earth within the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. 
It's a meeting of heaven and earth. And this is right in the middle of the people. God is camping in their camp. It's astounding. Before this, God's presence has shown up in similar ways. Cloud, fire. There was the burning bush back in chapter 3. In Exodus 16 and thereabouts, maybe 13 to 16, God was leading his people through the wilderness And they could see a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And they went where that went. He was leading the way. They came to Mount Sinai. And there God came down. And cloud and fire appeared again. But it was always out there. It was always at a distance. It was always at a safe distance. And what's unique now is that God is right there in the middle of the people. He's moved into the neighborhood. God now lives down the street from these people. And the people could see that he was there. They knew he was home all the time. Cloud in the daytime. Fire in the tabernacle. At night. What a comfort. Not only was he there, he would lead them, it says. And so here's where the end of the story of Exodus is clearly the beginning of more story. So verse 36 of chapter 40 begins with that phrase, throughout all their journeys... And then verse 38 ends with the same phrase, throughout all their journeys. What journeys? Well, not journeys that they've had, journeys still to come. Journeys recorded in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Journeys that would stretch another 40 years. Lots of journeys. A lot of times this would happen. If the cloud didn't move, the people didn't move. If the cloud started to move, the people started to pack up because they had to follow the cloud. So God would lead them day by day, moment by moment, even inch by inch. On the one hand, what a walk of faith this would have been. Imagine every single day on your calendar, it's a question mark. You stay in put or are you hitting the road? I don't know. I don't know. I'm a planner enough to find that a little frustrating, I suppose. Did it move? Is it going? Well, I thought I saw that last time, and then it started to go. Is it doing that again? I'd I'd be that kind of guy. This is a walk of faith. On the other hand, what an amazing comfort to have God with you, near you, for you, within you, on your side, leading the way, showing you that he's there all the time. And yet before we get too chummy about God living down the street from these people, did you notice verse 35? Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it. 
Here we have at the end of Exodus two theological truths. They're they're big words. One you probably know, one you may not. There's transcendence here and there's imminence here. And imminence is with an A in the middle. That means closeness in proximity, not closeness in time, which has an I in the middle. Anyway, back to transcendence and imminence. Transcendence means in terms of God, he's lofty. He's beyond our thoughts. He transcends our concepts. He's mysterious. He's, in a sense, distant. He dwells in unapproachable light. But he's also imminent. He's close. He draws near. He's not a distant God completely. Far from it. He's right there, smack dab in the middle. Two crucial theological truths at the end of Exodus. And also here at the end of Exodus, we're reminded again that though God will dwell amidst his people, there's still this very important need for the priesthood and sacrifices, for substitution, for the payment of sin. You see, even someone as special and important and as privileged and as obedient, at least at this point, as Moses was, there's no cat like him in the camp. Moses can't enter the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, the tabernacle that he just assembled. If he can't, then no one can except the priests, and they can't enter because they're perfect, because they're without sin. They they can enter only because God is so merciful, he sets up this system where they have to wash and wash and wash and wash again in order to come near, and they have to come with sacrifice. And only one priest can enter once a year into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice. You see, verse 35, this mysterious word that Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because God was there. It reminds us of what came before the anointing of the priesthood in earlier parts of chapter 40. But it also points ahead to the next book of the Bible, Leviticus. Leviticus, the priesthood, the sacrifices. And yet even the priesthood and the sacrifices as spelled out in the book of Leviticus. Though it was God's plan, it wasn't enough. It wasn't the final deal. That priesthood sacrificing system never took away anyone's sins. Even with those priestly sacrifices that would follow, someone like Moses could never enter into the inmost presence of God. He could never come and sit at the footstool of God. Back in the 90s, there was a a rather sad movie with Jack Nicholson. I think it was called As Good As It Gets. And if that's the title, it's from a line in there where he is in the waiting room for, well, a psychologist or a therapist. There are patients in there waiting to see their therapists. And Jack Nicholson and his character, that, that neurotic jerk of a character that he is in that movie, he, he just has fun saying something like this. He says to the patients, what if this is as good as it gets? And then he walks out. 
And the patients sitting there are terrified as they ponder the possibility of that reality. What if this is as good as it gets, not as bad as it gets? Well, Exodus 40 is no therapist's waiting room. It's much better than that. It's, in, in many ways, it is the highest point in God's redemptive plan since sin entered the world in Genesis 3. It's a, a fitting crescendo to the book of Exodus. But it also reminds us that more is still needed, as good as this is. We come to Exodus 40, and we might just for a moment wonder, what if this was as good as it gets. And if Exodus 40 is as good as it gets, we better figure out where this glory tent is somewhere on this planet and get there ASAP. But the end of Exodus is only the beginning. Only the beginning for all those journeys to follow in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And it's only part of the beginning of a story which reaches its fullest crescendo in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus became the embodiment of God's glory. Christmas is coming. We will read and we'll sing about Emmanuel, God with us. Or John 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Not knockoff glory. Not reflective glory like Moses had on his face. No, this is glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. It was veiled glory, so we sing at Christmas time, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And there was a time in Jesus' life where the veil of his glory in flesh was pulled back just a little. You know that scene where Superman opens his shirt and there's the S underneath. Well, there was something like that when one day Jesus was on the mountain. And he was transfigured. Who knows what that means? But he he glowed. His glory, veiled in flesh, was for a moment revealed. It was on on that mountain that he met with Moses and Elijah. Moses saw this glory. And you may say, well, I'd like to see that glory. How do I know if God's with us? Some people saw Jesus, and there was glory, John says. He was Emmanuel, God with us. A few people, Peter, James, and John, they saw the transfigured Christ. They saw the veil of flesh pulled back. You might say, I want that. I want to see. I want to know. I want the glory to come down. I want to know that he's with me. I want to be able to see that he's with me. Well, but Peter, one of the three who was with Jesus when he was transfigured, he wrote in his second epistle, we call it Second Peter, in chapter 1, he wrote that though he experienced that moment of glory and heard the Father affirm his Son, Peter says, yeah, I heard it, I saw it, but we have 
the prophetic word, that's scriptures, we have the prophetic word made more certain, he says. It's more certain. More certain than seeing with your eyes. More certain than hearing with your own ears. Don't discount the eyewitness testimony. Peter saw and he told us about it. And Peter says, we have the word made more sure now. And that's a word to which you must pay attention. A word like a lamp shining in a dark place. That's the Bible, the word. The Bible explains for us, it, it explains not only what happened, like Jesus was born and Jesus lived and he taught and he was transfigured and died and was raised, but the word elsewhere also tells us what that means. A book like Hebrews does it so well. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us not only what Jesus did, but what was going on behind the scenes. What no eye could have seen if it was there at the transfiguration, or at the cross, or at the resurrection, or at his ascension. So listen to this, Hebrews 8. Referring to those things back in Exodus, like a tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices. Verse 5 says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Those old things are just a shadow of the real things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, there's our passage. He was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But, the writer of Hebrews says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. A ministry described in chapter 7 of Hebrews like this. We have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And he has no need, like those high priests of old, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, Jesus did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's the cross. In Hebrews 9, just one more passage here in Hebrews 9, well, maybe two. When Christ appeared, chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come now, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, one not made with hands, one not of this creation, when Jesus did that, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Moses couldn't enter in. Moses couldn't bring sacrifice. Priests could, but it didn't do anything, not completely, not really. Something more was needed. And Christ came with sacrifice of his own self and entered all the way in not to the holy of holies in a tabernacle or a temple, but into heaven itself. And therefore, we have what's called, back in chapter 6 of Hebrews, a sure and steady anchor of hope. Listen to these verses. Chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's gone in. Our hope is on the other side. And he'll bring us with him someday. And those who have that hope, those who will one day join him on the other side in the innermost presence of God, they have the presence of God even now. So Jesus said to his followers in John 14, I'm going to give you the spirit of truth and he will dwell with you. He will stay with you. 1 Corinthians 3 says that Christians are now the temple of God. They're the tabernacle. God dwells in them in a much similar way, but more intimately, of course. He's not over there. He's not in the neighborhood. He's not down the street. He's literally in our hearts if we believe in Jesus. So is he with us? Yeah, you bet. And how do we know? Well, not because you can see it. You can't x-ray it. You can't MRI this thing. But the scriptures tell us. The same scriptures that record God showing up in visible glory are the same scriptures that record the cross and resurrection and teach us what it all means and what it all signifies and what the implications are. The implications of the presence of God in us and among us are so far-reaching, so massive, and so mighty. So I just invite you to think, maybe at your lunch table today, of what are the implications, either in the Bible or what you can surmise on your own, for the presence of God, for the dwelling of God within you today. I mean, if he's with me tomorrow, then he sees it all. He sees what I see. He knows what I know. He knows more than what I know. He's for me. There's assurance there. I could pray to him whenever. I should worship him in everything. Everything now is like tabernacle stuff. It's temple stuff. It's, it's important worship stuff. We're now priests in his very presence. His presence within me means he's not done with me. The Holy Spirit is, we're told, a down payment on our final salvation. This is just a foretaste of what's to come. If he's with me and for me, then what can man do to me? What can tomorrow change about that? The answer is nothing. If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this. Every one of us is longing for glory. We're longing for presence. Even if you think yourself a loner, I don't think you want that forever. You don't want to go live on Mars, probably. But we're longing for glory. We're longing for awe. We're longing for presence. And we're looking for love in all the wrong places. Jesus is the answer. He is glory. He is God's presence. If we believe in him and ask for salvation in him, 
he not only gives forgiveness, he gives us his presence. That doesn't change everything and make everything easy, but it changes a lot. The implications are many and massive. Is he with us? He's with us. He will do us good. He's revealing more glory all the time. And the day is coming when he will bring to completion what he started. So we're not at the end of the story yet. We're still in the story. But the end is coming. The end is sure. The last chapter has been written. The apostle John saw it in the book of Revelation. He saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and he will be their God, and they will be his people, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, neither, should there, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. That's what's in store. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you indeed for a steadfast anchor for our souls. Hope on the other side of the curtain. You, our forerunner, our priest, our sacrifice, our glory, our friend. Oh Lord, we thank you for your presence with us by your spirit. We thank you for your purposes to do us good. We pray we would live in light of that. And we pray that you would be with us as we seek to bring others in by your grace. You promised in the Great Commission that you would be with us even to the end of the age as we seek to make disciples for your name. Help us to do that on your behalf and for your glory. We do it in faith. And we do it beholding our great God. We pray in Christ's strong and saving and glorious name today. Amen.